Hello, hello. Welcome to the fourth episode of Tea with Mama Cash, because feminist activism works, with your hosts Zora Musa and Happy Mwende Kinyeli. Hi, I'm Zora, the executive director at Mama Cash, and I'm really happy to be spending a few days in the town I grew up in, which is in Toronto, Canada. And I'm happy the director of programs at Mama Cash. And when we are recording this, not when you're hearing it, there was a beautiful purple flower blooming on my balcony from cuttings that I grew. And now I want to grow food. So today we're talking about abortion. And yes, many, many years later, we're still talking about abortion. So why the hell are we still talking about it? Um, is abortion one of our favorite topics as feminists? Maybe. Why are governments, why are men still trying to control women's bodies? And why are they still trying to control women's decisions? We'll explore this and a lot more of this in this episode of Tea with Mama Cash. Let's start out first with some abortion facts. Abortions save lives. Abortions can be one of the safest medical procedures or surgical procedures. Abortions do not cause depression. Cis women are not the only folks who may need an abortion. So I'm going to ask you, were you always super pro-abortion, um, an abortion enthusiast, as one of our board members said recently, or did your own thinking about abortion change over time? I think I was always pro-choice. I don't think I would use the language of pro-abortion. I, I feel more comfortable with the language of pro-choice, and yeah, I always was. I don't know why. It's not like I knew someone who had had an abortion or I've read a particular thing about it that convinced me, like an argument or something. I just was. And I remember some of the first conversations I ever had about it in high school. I was very clear that I was pro-choice and that was my position. And I, I really can't say where that came from. What about you? Hmm. Ooh, this is, we need to have tea for this conversation. Oh, maybe something a little stronger. Because I wasn't. I... And in, in, it feels almost like a former life. I was deeply evangelical Christian. And so in that framework, the one thing that is consistent about my political ideas then and now is the framework mattered and there needed to be some form of consistency. And within that consistency to me was all lives matter and, you know, what evangelical Christians around the world say. As I evolved in my own thinking, even as I was a Christian, it got to a point, I was like, this makes no sense. Why do you want to decide what I want to do with my body. That was around college when I became pro-choice. And yeah. what, what was that like, actually, to change positions? Was that an easy process for you? Oh, no. <laughs> no, it wasn't, because a lot of the people who are nearest and dearest to me still do hold the idea that abortion is a sin, is a crime, whichever way. And it makes it difficult to have conversations about abortion access and I did actually, even in that frame when I was, I'll call it anti-choice for the purposes of my current political positions, I did, I did in several instances help some of my girlfriends to get abortions. And it was cognitive dissonance somewhere in my head, but it made sense because it was, you need this right now, so let's do this, and then we'll figure out the God question like three months from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the kind of space between the idea of something and then the actual reality that you're facing and how what choices you make in the situation that you're in. And I think that's one of the reasons why with abortion I kind of was pro-choice because 
if you're in that position, you just kind of need to do what you need to do. And why in the world would anyone else have a say in that when it's inside you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this for my girlfriends was a lot high school. So everything about your life will come to a standstill. And that's the choice you're making. So it didn't matter what anybody else said. It was this is what you need to make sense of your life today, tomorrow, and next week. So let's do that. And ideas, abstract theories, pieces of paper that men have signed on, that doesn't count. It is real. It is what I need. And that's what we're going to do. As I think about it now, I don't feel like I've juxtaposed those two positions next to each other for a long time. Is <laughs> That's why it makes sense for me to choose. You can't decide wherever you're sitting in your abstract place when you have absolutely no idea about what I need to survive today, tomorrow, and three days from now. One of the reasons we wanted to talk about abortion on Tea with Mama Cash when we were deciding what topics to talk about next was that right now when we're recording, we've just had two really significant developments in the fight for access to abortion around the world. One was in June, Argentina's congressional lower house voted to legalize abortion in the first 14 weeks of pregnancy. And in May, Ireland voted by popular referendum to legalize abortion up to 12 weeks, with over 66% actually of voters in favor. These are pretty significant changes in both of those countries, and they come after many, many decades of struggle by feminist movements in those contexts. And I think both of us were quite happy Mm -hmm. to hear about that news. And it also reminded us about how far there is still to go. Not just in those countries, because there are time limits, for example, and it's under certain conditions that those decisions got made, but also that it's accessing that service now, if it's available, is still an issue. And there's still many places around the world where all kinds of abortion are criminalized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I found it absolutely fascinating, the processes that led to the movement of these laws. So in Argentina, where it was the parliament, which has passed the law. And in Ireland, it was a public referendum. And I don't know if you have thoughts on this, or I'd love to hear also from people who are listening on what are the processes we should be going through to change laws that exist on books that affect people's lives. So for me, public referendum, why I sit and like, but why, why are we even putting that to vote? Or even in election, in electoral processes, or when you have parliaments Again, yes, these are people who have been voted into power. But again, as we all know, a lot of times government is swayed by who has the loudest voice, who's the loudest lobby group. And so then I'm like, but what is the process for us to go through to change these laws so that I think the people who are affected, which is the communities of women around the world or people who can give birth, are the ones who are opining about this. I remember this picture. So I grew up in Kenya and the, in 2010, we went through a referendum process to get a new constitution. And one of the things that was highly debated was about abortion, because the current constitution of Kenya allows abortion on conditions of maternal health. And you can interpret it to be about socioeconomic reasons. And there was this picture in the newspaper of the people who were saying we should not vote for this increasingly progressive constitution because of the clause on abortion. And the picture in the newspaper had a panel of men seated who are like, no, don't vote for this constitution. And one woman right at the corner is like, why are you the people who are telling me whether or not to vote for an entire constitution and essentially have a debate about abortion when you're 
none of you have a uterus. Like, why are you opining about this? Yeah, I, I struggle with this too, because we talked a little bit recently about, well, a couple of things. One is why, why is the law on our bodies? Why is the law being used to regulate our bodies? So you can debate that point. Mm -hmm. A second thing we talked about is what do you do when the law is already there and how do you transform it? And so that's the question you're posing. Mm -hmm. But a third thing we talked about is where did that law come from? And for me, the answer to the second question and possibly the first could come from answering the third question. Mm -hmm. So if we know the genesis of where that law comes from, we might be able to figure out a way that makes sense to overturn it. So... You had a point, I think, to make about this. Happy, do you want to share about where, where some of these laws have come from? As I was preparing for this conversation, I googled like abortion laws around the world and I got this map. I think it comes from the Guttmacher Institute that has red, orange and light yellow for parts of the world where either there's absolutely no access to abortion or some form of limitation, be it on time or health or socioeconomic reasons. And then there was a whole part of it that was grey because those parts of the world have figured out their abortion laws. And I found it fascinating that the parts of the world that have, quote unquote, good or no laws around abortion at all are parts of the world in the global north. And most of the countries that have restrictive laws around abortion are parts of the world that are in the global south. And in particular, countries that have been colonized and colonialists rolled in to do many things, to take many things from the parts of the world that they colonized. But they also brought their laws and they brought their religious frameworks and they imposed them on territories that had different frameworks of organizing themselves. And so when they get up and leave, they've left people who are existing between a legal framework and a religious framework that is not theirs, that has been imposed on them. And these people who have left go off and change it because it's part of their own process of evolution that they had already been in. But they've come and cut out a process of natural evolution for the colonized people. And now suddenly these people have imposed on them laws and religious frameworks that aren't theirs and they need to figure out how to change them. And yeah, so it makes sense that the map looks that way because of the effects of colonialism. Now, the question to us, those of us who are from countries that have been formerly colonized is, okay, so let's just get these things off the books. It's not a debate. They're not ours. They're not our laws. They're not our religious framework. So why are we hanging on to them to control ourselves? That for me is like absolute cognitive dissonance. I think that's, that's where I landed. It was that. It was piecing together the, the three bits of conversation we would be having to say, okay, but if you can locate the source of that as alien to where you are, then yeah, yeah. eject it yeah. and move from there. So I wonder if we could, if you could tell me in like 30 seconds, what has been your experience on working on abortion rights? Abortion is one of the topics that I have a visceral relationship with for no apparent reason. True story. I used to screen people I was going to consider dating or be in a relationship with for their position on abortion. So I would somehow sneak it into the conversation early enough when I was exploring with them to check what their position on abortion was and on that basis decide if I was going to pursue something with them. Hmm. And when I told some people this, they mocked me and they didn't get it. And for me, somehow it just crystallized so much of what feminism is for me. And especially when I was dating men, like what they thought about their right to have an opinion over my body really affected my thinking about whether I wanted them mm. to be able to access my body. 
something about that. And so I somehow used to sneak it in and I would get all kinds of answers because they obviously knew it was a test question because it's a really awkward thing to ask. And then I would kind of go from there. I feel like that needs to be on Dating Tips 101 for feminists (laughs) around the world. (laughs) Where is that book? I want it. Let's write it. Happy, you started your work at Mama Cash, leading our programmatic work on body issues, a portfolio we called Body, which included reproductive justice, still does. It's one of our most important portfolios in that it's been with us some of the longest time. It's been with Mama Cash since the beginning. I thought you were going to say it's because I worked on it, but okay. Also, also, (laughs) what's your take on abortion and Mama Cash's work on it right now? So the thing, as I was prepping for this, I looked through the groups of our grantee partners who work on abortion rights explicitly, or even those that frame it within reproductive justice. And the one thing that was common for all of them was they all said how we cannot publicly name them, that they do work on abortion rights. We can name them as working on reproductive justice or women's health. But if we said that they work on abortion rights, that would put them at threat in their country um, and in their context, which just, just highlights how Abortion continues to be that highly stigmatizing um, and cause for violence for women around the world. And they're just saying, I want to decide what I want to do with my body. And this was true for groups in all regions of the world. So it's not like, yes, in some parts it's safer than in others. But yeah, it's it felt it's truly universal, at least just looking at the grantee partners of Mama Cash. And they're doing really innovative work from doing lobbying and advocacy to finding ways to get access to services. So particularly medical abortion and trying to figure out how do they get the pills to women using different methodologies, working with pharmacists or midwives to get that or just sharing information and building bases of people who can support other women to be able to access abortions, which, yeah, it's amazingly powerful work. I think one of the things I've been impressed with lately is how these two referendums got won. And one of the examples I particularly want to talk about was the situation in Argentina. Mm -hmm. Because the abortion rights movement, if we call it that, had a big push from the lesbian women's movement. A lot of the organizing, a lot of the orchestration of the movement, a lot of the force came from the power of the lesbian women's movement in Argentina. Mm -hmm. And I wondered... Well, what you think about that, of course, because I'm always interested in what you think about these things. But also, why is that true for abortion? Why was abortion seen as a broad feminist issue for which all kinds of women would stand up and organize or move together with? And in particular, that lesbians would show up for. But we don't see the reverse. So, for example, we don't see broad feminist support for lesbian women's rights necessarily. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think that's a good question. And I, I'm not certain I have the answer. I, For me, where I said both things, lesbian rights and abortion rights are fundamentally about choosing. Like I want to be able to choose what I want to do with my body in terms of when I reproduce or when I don't, who I have sex with or who I don't, um, when I work and when I don't and, and on and on. But when it comes to the actual, like the building of solidarity alliances, there seems to be that disconnect that happens. And I've been in rooms where I've had people make really passionate arguments for me, which is the same thing, but only seeing it from one perspective. So in this instance is, yes, of course, we want autonomy. I want autonomy. I want to choose. I want to choose for abortion, but not for lesbian rights. And then there's cognitive dissonance moment of, oh, but why would you want to choose? I mean, a penis is so nice, but that's not the point. (laughs) Um, Do you have any ideas of why 
it seems some issues are so much easier to rally a broader swath of feminists around and others less so. I mean, I, I suppose it's the idea that almost all women might at some point need an abortion or something like this, and that maybe people don't identify at some point wanting to be in a relationship other than what they consider their current straight one or something like this. Mm-hmm. For me, that's a pretty incomplete answer. <laughs> uh, but I, I was just trying to brainstorm, like, what, what could it be? Why is it easy to access that idea, but not the other? And I don't know, maybe it's also related to, you, you mentioned it being about choice. And you also mentioned it being about autonomy. And for me, that was, that was a prevalent point. The idea that it's about your, what's happening to your body. That's why I'm a bit curious why people don't stand up for, organize for lesbian women's rights. Mm-hmm. The idea that a woman's body is hers. Yeah. To have pleasure, however, to exercise, however. Mm. And when you say that, it makes me remember, I was in a conversation recently about with um, women's rights activists. I mean, I don't know if they'd call themselves feminists in Europe who are talking about the laws that, lesbians are pushing for around support for reproductive access so that I want I want to be able to have children and then they ask the question of wait on the one hand you're fighting for abortion but Mm -hmm. on the other you're trying to have children and to them that was a contradiction Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but no I feel the whole oomph behind the abortion rights is it's about choice if I want to have an abortion, then I should have the access to it. If I want to have a child and I can decide one thing one year and something totally different the next year. And there's no inconsistency in that. And so getting other women's rights activists to rally around the lesbian call for come with us and let's lobby our governments around access to reproductive services so that I can have kids was like, no, 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 that makes no sense. Like, Yeah, it's yeah, that deep contradiction. That actually is interesting for me in terms of thinking about how we might build more solidarity because there are women who wouldn't identify as lesbian who would also desire that kind of Mm -hmm. health access, right? And so there are arguments that you can make on a broader platform if you see lesbian women's rights as a narrow platform, you could make on a broader platform that is about reproductive choice. And I have seen some good organizing around that. Uh, and that that gives me hope that it's possible to do that. But it is a source of frustration that women don't show up for each other around some of these things, things really to do with the body, knowing under how much control our bodies are, mm-hmm. how much they're scrutinized, how power is taken away from us through manipulation and control over our bodies. It's I find it deeply frustrating mm-hmm. that this is still a gap in our movement sometimes. Yeah. And when you look at what happens, for example, with around abortion laws, is that whenever there's regime change, that's often one of the first places that the new governments will either come to make more progressive laws or make more retrogressive laws. And that's one a reason for solidarity. But if we put it within the broader framework of reproductive justice and said, actually, what we want is we want reproductive choice, we want reproductive agency, and then make that no longer a site of contestation on political parties. And, you know, Trump comes and says this, and then Obama says something different. Sorry, I only have American examples in my head. But other countries, right? I don't know, I feel like we'd have so much more possibilities for keeping the gains that we've made if we actually held it as the lens is about reproductive justice. Happy, we were just talking about how abortion is used as a kind of political football and how annoying that is. 
<laughs> I want to talk about the reality that it's also a thing amongst feminists. I had experiences mm -hmm. where I'm with other feminists and I've assumed we have a common understanding about abortion and the right to choose. And it's not that I know any feminists who go around saying, no, I'm anti-choice. So mm -hmm. the feminists I know say they are pro-choice. But their understanding of pro-choice and my understanding of pro-choice are two different things. And in particular, some of the conversations I have have been around time limits. Mm. So people are okay with abortion as long as it's up to a certain number of weeks, for example. And I know in the broader population, I know there's a world outside of <laughs> feminist circles, I've heard. In the broader population, the debates that do happen, including in these referendums, are about these time limits. Mm. But there are other elements of limitation or control. Mm -hmm. So, for example, people are okay with a woman having a right to an abortion if she's been raped or if her life is at risk. Mm -hmm. And I, I want us to explore that a little bit. What do we think about this idea of a woman's right to choose under certain conditions mm -hmm. or placing limitations on the level of autonomy a woman should have over her own body? Um, for me, abortion is, yeah, you choose up until you choose, right? There's no end point of choice. And the restrictions that get placed on it, the rape on the health or socioeconomic reasons, those ones we can have debates and people can move them. The time one I'm with you is the one that people are like, no, after 20 weeks, because science has told us life is viable at 20 weeks. But the conversation has never been about life. We're not talking about life, at least life in when does it start, when does it end? If you're talking about life, you're talking about the woman's life. Um, but the point is, I want to choose what I do with my body. And after 20 weeks, on 20 weeks and one day, suddenly that choice is taken away from me because, again, a room of people who seem to know a few things about things have decided that's when life begins. Or at this point, what was previously on 19 weeks and six days is the fetus and on 20 weeks and one day is a baby. No, it's it makes no sense to me. It's it's an artificial barrier. And it also makes me think of books and conversations I had in college around ethics where philosophers would sit and really have long debates about when does life begin and how outside medical realms, like how can we decide philosophically or ethically this is where life begins, where life ends. Okay, have that conversation over there in the corner, but we're talking about I'm here, I know what's happening in my life and I get to actually make that choice. And there's no end point for when I can make that choice. But isn't that the crux of it, right? So we, we call it a pro-choice yeah. movement, and they, the they that we know, mm -hmm. call it a pro-life movement. And they position themselves as defending life. Mm -hmm. And we know, for example, that some of the ways that these two referendums got passed was by saying this saves women's lives. So we also use it, right, as mm -hmm. an argument for why women should have access to abortion, because it does save lives in many contexts. Mm -hmm. However... I think we would say it shouldn't only have to be life-saving for a woman, for a woman to have access to that abortion. Mm -hmm. But that is some of the frames we're working in. And, and where people will be movable is if it's life-saving in some way. Mm -hmm. The thing I also get curious about, though, is why a woman has to undergo something that is life-threatening. To give birth is life-threatening, mm -hmm. even in the best of conditions. A complication could happen and it is life-threatening. To save a potential life, let's call it, but in no other situation is someone required to do that. If you were bleeding out right now and needed a blood transfusion from me, which would wear the same, I don't know, same blood type, it's going to cost me nothing to give you a couple pints of blood, I'm under zero obligation to do this for you. I'm not even under obligation to do it for my child if I have a child. Mm -hmm. 
But for some reason, on this, I am obligated to sacrifice myself for this life, for this potential life, but mm. not in another situation. And I raise that because, A, it's, it's inconsistent with how else we think about saving lives. I also raise it because the conditions under which we place women to access that abortion in many contexts are set up as if it's a great moral dilemma. Mm -hmm. And this debate, right? Even where is life beginning and what are we doing and are we... Yeah, it's, it's positioned as a moral dilemma. Mm -hmm. However, the actual procedures that you need to undergo are pretty standard. They aren't very complicated. They're easy to get done. It doesn't take a long recovery period, nothing. In many contexts, you need to go through more hoops to have an abortion, even a pill, a medical pill, than you would to have brain surgery or heart surgery, mm -hmm. which makes no sense because those are actually life-threatening. Mm -hmm. So I know the UK context well because I, I did some work there um, on this topic and you needed two doctors to sign off. You, they, I, can't, I don't know now where it's at, but at one point they were talking about needing mandatory counseling, oh, wow. a waiting period. Whereas if you needed heart surgery or brain surgery, you could rock up or however mm -hmm. and have that happened and not need to clear it with anyone else, not need to have a big discussion with anyone else about it, not need mm -hmm. to give or receive anything yeah. from any other family member or anybody related <laughs> to you in any way. It was entirely your choice. Yeah. My brain is absorbing it. <laughs> I'm enjoying what you're saying. And also at the same time, it makes me think of, to me, one of the oldest arguments around and at the point of conversion that converted me was talking about why are we so busy trying to save this potential life when there's lives that we're willy-nilly letting to die and to go and it doesn't matter. So again, going back to that map that I talked about, where in those parts of the world where black and brown people live, those black and brown people are dying because of the choices that have been made by their states, by other states, by international bodies. And we're not rallying around that. It's just become, oh, it's that thing that happens. But if we talk about saving this potential life, everybody will come out to the streets and be like, no, we need to protect this potential life. Somehow we've made it that the idea of life is more important than some people's lives. Like these black and brown people, primarily, but not only. And as I was coming to this and prepping, I was listening to a podcast that was talking about abortion in South Africa during the apartheid moment. And the apartheid government did multiple things to control abortion access. One, they wanted to make sure that poor white people were not able to have abortion access because they wanted to control their reproduction, but they didn't care about abortion of black people because they don't count who they birth and who they give who they birth and who they are themselves is not life and they had long conversations about again the potential life of white people which is more important than the black people that they're killing yeah i just get frustrated and throw my hands up and unable to complete sentences because it's absolutely ridiculous to me Happy thanks for that reminder that not everyone has the same access even within a place, within a particular location, because things like class, race, gender matter. So, for example, something could be legal and not everyone have access to it because they can't afford to get there. But equally, just because something's illegal doesn't mean some people aren't able to avail themselves. And I think about that in particular because that could be a reason why some women don't mobilize for access to abortion. Mm. If middle-class women 
in the context of an illegal situation where abortion is illegal can still get access to what they need, they may not be moved to agitate for it to be changed under the law. Mm, True, true. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. Please find us online at www.mamacash.org and on social media. We want to hear from you. Subscribe, leave a comment, leave a review on SoundCloud, Stitcher or iTunes. It will help us reach more people and continue the conversation. And that way you'll be the first to hear about our next episode. The problem with progress or decolonizing feminism. Is feminism free of its colonial past? I have many things to say about that. So who gets to be the face of feminism? Whose issues are on top of the agenda? Don't miss it. This is us, your host Zora Musa. And happy Monday, Kinyili. Signing, Signing off, off until, until the, the next, next time. time. This podcast was produced by Amanda Giggler and Sophia Sewell, our colleagues at Mama Cash, in collaboration with the fabulous Natalia Chukuki. We recorded this episode in Studio Amsterdam with help from Nick DeWitt, who also did the audio post-production. 